0: Are listening to the Patriot Pastors podcast, where we talk about today's issues from a pastor's perspective, as well as calling America back to the faith of our fathers. Pastors Wade Lentz and Harold Smith are your hosts, and now let's get started.
1: Wade, I am really excited about today's podcast. Harold, I am too.
0: I- I never would have thought that we just started this podcast in September, and here we are. Today, we're going to be able to interview a presidential candidate. Did you know that?
1: We really are the Patriot Pastors <laughs> podcast. <This is> right.
0: <laughs> we have with us today Pastor Mike Stone, who is the pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Blackshear, Georgia. And uh, Mike, it's good to have you with us
2: Guys, it's a privilege to join you. I'm grateful for the opportunity.
0: You know, I didn't tell you this earlier, but uh, the first time I heard you was about 10 years ago at a Bible conference in Mississippi. And when you got up behind the pulpit, you really preached a, a tremendous message. I've been a that, fan uh, ever since.
2: Uh, thanks. I guess that would have been probably at a Bailey Smith crusade. Uh, yeah, I think
0: like, it was. Wheeler Grove. Yes, Wheeler Grove, Corinth, Mississippi. Yes.
2: era did a tremendous job there for several decades and uh, just a great church. It was an honor to be there.
0: Yes, yes. Well, Mike, tell us a, a little bit about uh, yourself, your family, your ministry. and of course, about two weeks ago you announced that uh, your candidacy for uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, if so, right. if the convention chooses. Uh, tell us a little a little bit about yourself, please.
2: Well, I guess I'd start with the best part. Outside of being saved, I was saved at the age of eight. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and when I was fourteen years old, just through a study, really, of the book of Ephesians, and the following year, the book of First Corinthians came to have some doctrinal differences with our church. Uh, the pastor there did faithfully preach the gospel in terms of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and so I was uh, I was saved when I was in the third grade. But um, my parents. Uh, wanted me to go to church with them, required me to go to church with them until I graduated from high school, which I understand and appreciate their commitment uh, to their faith. But I became a Southern Baptist by conviction during college, just going around visiting uh, different churches, growing up in a very small uh, Pentecostal church. I didn't know the difference between a Presbyterian and a Unitarian Universalist. Mm -hmm. I literally had no Uh, uh, understanding of those distinctions at all. But uh, in the 10th grade, I really sensed a call to ministry. But being in such a small church with a volunteer pastor, uh, the idea of vocational ministry literally was not even in my vocabulary. I did not know such a thing even existed. So uh, I went to undergraduate school with the idea that I was going to be a minister of music and a high school band director. And uh, during that time, the Lord really changed my uh, direction. And I, I thought then I was going to be an attorney. So I went to uh, the first year of law school at Mercer University. And while I was sitting in property class one day, I found myself notating trumpet parts for a wind ensemble I was leading at school. And I thought, this isn't the brightest thing to spend $33,000 a year and write music in property class trying not to get caught. And that was a watershed <laughs> event in my moment. Uh, or in my ministry, and it just confirmed that God was calling me into what, by that time, I understood was vocational ministry. So I went into the music ministry, and uh, almost 25 years ago, God called me and my wife uh, to Blackshear, where I've been serving on staff, and then for 19 years now as senior pastor uh, here at Emmanuel. Uh, I have been married just over 25 years. My wife and I, after about seven years of uh, struggling with infertility. We were blessed to adopt two children through the ministry of what some people call a crisis pregnancy center. And mm-hmm. so uh, in addition to just biblically being pro-life and unapologetically so uh, as a dad uh, and uh, uh, to two precious, beautiful adopted children, I'm mm-hmm. very adamant and unambiguous on that position. Then God uh, gave us two surprise miracles, two biological oh, children any adopted parents you have listening will know that I never think of my children being uh uh different uh, unless I'm describing it in this context but mm-hmm. two two adopted children we uh, adopted at birth and then two biological uh children mm-hmm. but in my ministry here in Georgia God's blessed the ministry I'm in a very small rural town 4000 people in our town and we're we're metro nothing uh, we're not we're not a 4000 uh city, uh, 4,000 residents, suburb of anything, mm-hmm. but uh, about 16 17,000 people in the county, and we're surrounded by counties of similar size, yet God has really blessed the ministry here. Pre-COVID, we'd have uh, 1050, 1100 in two services on Sunday mornings, and that's given me some opportunities uh, to serve in our state convention. Easiest description is to say in the Georgia Baptist Convention, which is the second largest of our state conventions in the SBC. I've served as EC, pre, EC chairman, uh, president as well. I've done everything in Georgia except be president of the WMU, and uh, <laughs> they, they don't allow that here, nor would I want to do it. And then uh, I've also served as two years as chairman of the SBC executive committee. So just a, a lot of experience in uh, convention life. Uh, but one of the things we may get into a little bit, I, I've i had a lot of experience serving in these places, but I've never really run with, if I could use that phrase, uh, I've never really run with the in crowd of the big name preachers and uh, those who have uh, served in a lot of capacities. I'm not begrudging them in that, but that's just not uh, who I've tended to run with. But um, uh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago announced uh, a nomination for SBC president.
1: One of the, the things when you said you started out as a music minister, I've heard you preach. And I was like, this guy's definitely gifted and called to declare God's word. And uh, you were talking about being in law school and, and just the build up and how you ended up in the pastorate. I was going, "All right, I can see all of that in your preaching and your mm-hmm. you're dealing with the text. And I thought, well, that explains a lot about why you are is where you are as a preacher and the interesting thing to me and I tell people this all the time people have this idea if you're a great preacher you need to go some big urban area where right. you can reach a, you know a ton of people and god has always sent faithful pastors out into the wilderness mm-hmm. you know in the jordan rivers where john the baptist was
3: yeah
1: and uh, so I, i'm glad that you shared the size of the town that you're in and your faithful ministry there, because I really, really feel like rural ministry is what's lacking in uh, preachers. They want to go somewhere, get a big church. You just need to go be faithful in a church. And if the Lord yes. blesses that ministry, you can end up just like you are in Blackshear. Man.
2: Well, I'm uh, 50 years old. I've been here almost mm-hmm. 25 years. And if God be pleased, I could have a 40 year ministry here, which is my prayer. I've had plenty of opportunities to leave, but God's never given me a liberty uh, to do that. Uh, A few years ago, um, kind of a big name preacher in the SBC called me and wanted to recommend me to a place. And he said, you need to be in one of the great churches of America. And I said, well, I've determined what I need to do is invite you to come preach for me one Sunday and you'll find out I already am in mm. one of the great churches in America. Uh, the only problem is when you get through preaching, we'll have to decide, are we going to go to Dairy Queen, McDonald's, or Huddle House? That's all that's going to be open around here on a Sunday night. <laughs>
0: wow. Kevin Williams, uh, the president of the Georgia Baptist State Convention, said concerning your nomination, at this critical moment in our history, mm. Southern Baptists need to be led by a trusted local church pastor with strong convictions about the sufficiency of Scripture, a passion for evangelism, and deep experience in the work of our convention. And he says, Pastor Pastor Mike Stone is a trusted leader among Georgia Baptists, and I believe he is the kind of experienced pastor and statesman Southern Baptists need. That's a very good uh, recommendation from the the president of the Georgia State Convention then Tom Askell of Founders Ministries. As I have long contended, the Southern Baptist Convention and its entities belong to the churches. We need to be led by a pastor who has a commitment to see our convention be responsive to the concerns and convictions of its churches. Pastor Mike and I do not agree on every point of theology, but the challenges facing our convention convention call for Reformed and non-Reformed alike to stand together on our common love for the Savior and his, and his gospel for the sake of our collective mission. Those are two great recommendations, and I know there are others, uh, but I, I agree with Tom Askell. The Southern Baptist Convention, especially its leadership, needs to be led by people who are actively involved as a pastor in a local New Testament church. Right. One thing that Tom Askell said in another uh, article that I read is that we need, speaking of the Southern Baptist Convention, need to get back to the basics.
2: What, what do you think he meant by that? Well, I could just tell you what's on my heart, and Tom and I have spoken extensively on a number of occasions. Uh, I think that we need to focus on reaching the world with the gospel. Uh, We have gotten so distracted in recent years with a lot of different things, and we have labeled many of them as gospel issues. In fact, it's sort of a pet peeve of mine, if I'm real honest with you, that the word gospel has become more of an adjective than a noun referencing a body of truth. And when everything is a gospel issue, then nothing becomes a gospel issue. The gospel is laid out uh, in many places in Scripture, most succinctly perhaps, 1 Corinthians fifteen three and 4, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, repentance and faith in Him, and the reception of that gospel by God's grace through no merit of our own will impact, if you've really received Christ, it will impact every other area of your life. So it's not that the gospel doesn't impact all these other matters. It's that those matters are not gospel issues, you can be right or wrong about a number of other things, uh, but we need to be focused on reaching the world with the gospel. Uh, the sufficiency of Scripture and championing that mm-hmm. is another idea of getting back to the basics and is one of the uh, items that I really want to help champion. We may get into this a little bit more, but specifically when I talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, I'm talking about rejecting political correctness, critical race theory, intersectionality. A lot of these ideologies and philosophies that are creeping into uh, our Southern Baptist vernacular. Mm-hmm. And I also think uh, Tom and I, our hearts really resonate with the idea of having uh, a pastor, and more specifically the pastor of a more normative church. Now, Emmanuel is certainly not a small church by Southern Baptist standards, but it's not a mega church that has tended to characterize a lot of our SBC presidents. I I still do marriage counseling. I still do crisis counseling. I still go visit the hospitals. I, if there's a pastor listening to this podcast, my life is most likely his life. Uh, I may have a few more people to do it uh, with and minister to, uh, but a very normative uh, congregation here. Mm-hmm. And we need more involvement from grassroots Southern Baptist, not this top down, uh, uh, Top-down governance type of approach that that we see increasingly in the SBC.
1: Yes, that that is a very that is is something I hear from preachers is it's almost like we've developed a bureaucracy in the Southern Baptist Convention. It was, you know, we are a convention ran by churches, but it almost kind of appears. And, and I'm not saying that it is. You can disagree with me, but I know a lot of younger preachers feel like it is a top-down structure. And if you're right. not in that that upper echelon or you don't pastor a mega church, you're not even in consideration for a position like this, and right. so I'm thrilled when I hear and I, and I know you and I know about you. I'm thrilled when I hear that a a genuine I hate to use the word traditional, but a traditional type Southern Baptist pastor has been nominated for president of the Southern Baptist Convention that does my heart good.
2: Well, in this case, we've seen an increasing level of, I think, power and uh, and influence in our entity heads. They are collectively called the Great Commission Council. Uh, that's a title that's given to that group of of leaders by the, the bylaws of the SBC. And uh, but I've I've told somebody recently that GCC needs to stand for Great Commission Council, not a Great College of Cardinals. Uh, right. We need to be led by messengers from 47,000-plus local New Testament churches who gather and let their voice and their convictions be heard.
0: Yes. Right. yes. Very well said. You, you mentioned something earlier about the critical race theory that's really starting to infiltrate, especially in the leadership of the SBC. Right? Could you briefly and concisely kind of give our listeners what, critical race theory is or woke theology is, and then tell us where you stand on the issue.
2: Well, let me start by saying that I I don't pretend to be an expert in critical race theory, nor do I think somebody has to be in order to refute it or to determine that it's incompatible with the Bible. A recent statement by the Council of Seminary Presidents said it's incompatible with the Baptist faith and message, which I believe that as well and that statement was in response to uh, celebrating the 20th anniversary of the current BFM. And I think they would agree that it's incompatible with the Bible. Uh, I've actually been criticized for criticizing CRT because I don't claim to be an expert in it. So let me just say, by way of example, I'm not an expert in microbiology or physics, but I don't need to be to refute the false theory of evolution. I can look in the opening pages, literally the opening verses of Genesis, and know that in the beginning, uh, an all-powerful, ever-existent God created everything out of nothing. And if you've got some theory or belief that differs with that, I know enough to know that that other thing is wrong. So I do want to preface my answer by saying I do not pretend uh, to be uh, some type of academician or expert on all the nuances of critical race theory, but I know enough and I've seen enough to know that it is incompatible with God's Word. And I would distinguish that it's not the problem is not that it's an extra biblical source of information. We as pastors use extra biblical sources of help and uh, information all the time. We may get an analogy or illustration from the newspaper. We may get help from a commentary. Uh, but there's a difference in something being extra biblical and something being unbiblical or contra biblical. And critical race theory, uh, as I understand it and believe it to be, is un. Biblical, uh, it is infiltrating, beginning to uh, impact some sections of our Southern Baptist Convention, although you'll have very few people who will uh, admit that they fully embrace it. Um, mm-hmm. just as just as a quick story, I preached on the issue of racism back in June. The country was beginning to see the what I call the uh, anarchy and uh, violent riots across this country. And so I preached on the subject of racism. And in that, I acknowledge that I'm not an expert on CRT. And I, 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 I suppose that somebody may say, Pastor, you're widely read. Could you recommend a couple of good books to help me understand the problem and the remedy for racism in America? And I said, yes, Genesis and Romans. Uh, you, you, yeah. If you understand Genesis, you know what got us in this mess and the gospel that is prophesied there in the opening pages of Genesis and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and then Paul teaches on that very exegetically in the book of Romans, that's sufficient to tell us what what the remedy is. Mm, So so with that in mind, critical race theory is a derivative of the broader critical theory. One of the reasons that it's a problem is that it divides. Yes. It divides humanity into categories of oppressor, And oppressed, uh, victim and aggressor. You've got people that are privileged and people that are abused. And I think we should be honest that uh, all those categories exist. There are people who oppress and there are people who have been oppressed. There are abusers and they are abused. But the problem with critical race theory and its cousin, intersectionality, is that it divides people into these and assigns people to these categories based on their identity,
3: Mm -hmm. not on their
2: behavior or Or their actual actions. Uh, That's where we get the idea of uh, systemic racism that we hear so much about. Right. And I certainly believe that there's racism in the world. I've seen it in my own community. I've seen it rear its head uh, within our own church membership from time to time. But critical race theory looks at systems and structures to determine how you fit in that system based on your identity. Mm -hmm. And that's that's why you get phrases also like white privilege. You're not privileged because you're privileged. You're privileged because you're white.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: You're guilty because of where you fit inside some oppressive system. And by the way, if you're guilty because you're white, uh, you're also guilty because you're, if you're a male, because males oppress females. (laughs) You're guilty if you're wealthy or educated or in our day heterosexual. Mm-hmm. So with no offense, guys, we're in that highest category of the oppressor because yep. we are uh, educated, white, Protestant, heterosexual men. Yes. And, and it's not based on anything that we've done. It's based on our identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, real quickly, let me tell you one, one reason that that is so antithetical to the gospel. If I'm guilty of something just because I'm a man or just because I'm white, I can never be forgiven of that. Mm -hmm. Because if my guilt is based on my identity, I can go to a place of prayer. I can weep. I can confess. I can repent. I can grieve. I can (laughs) mourn. But when I say amen, I'm still a white male. And if that makes me guilty, I'm just as guilty as I was before. The, 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 The flip side of that is also true. If someone is not guilty of any sin because they are a bisexual uh, African-American biological female who's living in poverty, uh they're economically poor, they don't have to repent because they haven't they haven't done anything wrong.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: the one of the major problems with critical race theory and intersectionality is that it assigns guilt or innocence based on identity. Now, now. As an example, this is how you can have a a leading administrator at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary say that I am a racist because I'm white. Hmm. And I will be a racist and struggle with white supremacy until the day I die and receive my glorified body. These statements are made despite anybody that knows this brother says they, they don't see a hint of racism or that type of hateful behavior in his life. He, he's guilty of it simply because of being a white male. It, it's a, it's rooted in identity politics. Mm-hmm. Now, wow. Wade, you also asked about being uh, woke. Um, I'm not a morning person, so I don't like to be woke. Even <laughs> to be, uh, woke. My my mm-hmm. life verse is that it's a vain thing to rise early.
3: And, mm-hmm. uh,
2: but uh, the word woke in this context. Uh, My understanding is was added to um, Oxford Dictionary just a few years ago in 2017, the reference being awakened in your thinking to things like uh, social injustice, systemic racism, uh, et cetera. And the idea is that some experience around you, something you've encountered, a a movie you've watched, a book you've read, a conversation you've had, has awakened you uh, to some particular reality. Now. As a pastor, and and more fundamentally than that, as a Christ follower, that 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 idea, that notion, is very troubling to me. Uh, I shared with my church in a recent sermon because I, I I preach on these issues all the time. I've preached on racism. Uh, I've I've preached about uh, the repentance of sin. I, I try to preach about repentance of of from sin each and every Sunday. Uh, but I challenge my church that if you've been in a Bible teaching church, some of our college students—they've been at Emmanuel all their life. I know the preaching they've heard for the last nineteen, twenty years because I've been the one doing it. Right. And my predecessors are faithful uh, Bible expositor as well. So I challenge them: if you're in college and you've been in, you've been in sermon after sermon, Sunday school lesson after Sunday school lesson, and. And you've been in God's word and the Holy Ghost of God never convicted you that you hated other people because of the color or the tone of their skin. But you went and read a book or a magazine article or read a blog article and that awakened you to some sin. You've supposedly committed that the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word never awakened you to. I, I, I just share I'd be very careful being awakened to something that the word of God and the spirit of God were not sufficient to wake me up to. Mm
1: hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a very good point, Mike. I, I, if I wasn't cutting you off, I would have said "Amen" about every pause you took through there, because we we are in complete harmony and agreement with with your views on CRT and the woke movement, and I, I don't think I could have said it any better than you just did. So, well,
2: well Harold, at, at its core, it's a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture, even by those who claim that they embrace CRT and the sufficiency of Scripture. I see the two as mutually uh, incompatible. Uh, they are inconsistent with one another. Uh, when Paul told Timothy uh, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, uh, he told him that in the context of saying, preach the word.
3: Right. And
2: the listeners here know that he, he says that right after he had said that it's the Scripture. All of it,
3: <laughs> right? That
2: is profitable for doctrine, rebuke, correction, instruction, or training in righteousness, that, that that the man of God may be adequate. Now, here in South Georgia, we understand the word adequate means he's going to be sufficient. He's going to get be he's going to be complete. I've got everything that I need for uh, doing a work of God and living for God in the pages of the Bible. I don't need anything else, and I certainly don't need anything else that contradicts. The principles and precepts of God's word.
1: That's, uh, that's what Southern Baptists need to realize. We, we thought, we fought for the inerrancy of scripture in the sixties and seventies and eighties. But what has been overlooked is the sufficiency of scripture. And that's really what's under attack today. Mm-hmm. Very, very, I'm very well pleased with your answers, um, uh, in that area. Wade, you got some more questions for us?
0: Yeah. I just w- kind of want to go over some of the, uh, there are three other candidates beside yourself. Um, right. One being Ed Linton, who is a pastor in Alabama, and I would be safe to say that he would be more of your left-leaning of the candidates. Uh, he is uh, one of the s- recently a signer of the Justice and Repentance and the SBC, uh, which called on six of the SBC seminaries to embrace CRT. Uh, so he is going to be a candidate. Uh, another man by the name of Randy Adams, who is the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention, which I'm a little bit confused on that. Is that, how does that tie into the Southern Baptist?
2: Or yeah, the Northwest Baptist Convention is what, uh, it's a counterpart to what you would have as the Arkansas Baptist Convention. It is essentially a state convention. We have some pioneer areas of the SPC where there's not enough population for them to have representation on our various boards. And so sometimes states will, uh, combine. You have the Utah-Idaho, mm-hmm. uh, convention. The Northwest Convention is Washington State, Oregon. And the kind of the upper sliver of the of the state of of Idaho, because geographically it's easy for them to meet together with Washington and Oregon. So he's essentially uh, a Sonny Tucker counterpart that that okay. uh, an executive director of what most listeners would just call a state convention.
0: Okay. And then the uh, other candidate is Dr. Al Moeller. Of course, he is a longtime president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, can you kindly tell us some of the differences mainly between you and Dr. Moeller? The n- main differences that you would have.
2: Yeah, uh first of all, I should say that I've had great respect for Dr. Moeller through the years, tremendous appreciation for him. Uh I don't listen to the briefing every day, but I listen to the briefing almost every day. And on a long trip, sometimes I'll double or triple up and go back and listen to some that I've missed. He he speaks articulately into a lot of cultural issues from a biblical worldview perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think Southern Baptists in the SBC today are uh, almost universally uh, appreciative of the tremendous work that he's done, uh, 26, maybe going on 27 years or so as president there uh, at Southern. So I certainly count him as a brother in the Lord, and I'm not angry with him or want to speak negatively of him, but there are some distinctions, uh, between us other than the obvious ones, uh, and, uh, that, that's the essence of your question. I do think, first of all, that there is a, there is a real conflict of interest, uh, with an entity president serving as president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I felt that way some 20 years ago when the last entity head uh, Dr. Paige Patterson at the time was president at Southeastern and uh, ran for and was elected as president of the convention. Uh, the president of the convention has some uh, indirect but very real influence over who sits on the boards of trustees. And so um, I think most people can see that there is a conflict of interest there. Uh, right. When he was asked about it by Baptist Press, Dr. Moeller said there was no conflict of interest, and he cited that uh, others have uh, done this in the past, that just means that it's not unprecedented. That, that does not mean that it's not unwise. Right. Further, further just on that point, uh, we're in an era where there is, a, there is a legitimate call for increased accountability, transparency uh, from our entities. The, the Great Commission Council, our entity heads, I think have an undue amount of influence and power. So if there was ever a time in SBC life that it was wise to have an entity head serve as president, it's not the year of our Lord 2021. Uh, that's irrespective of any differences of uh, of approach or uh, platform that I would have with Dr. Moeller. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that critical race theory has begun to uh, make some inroads at Southern Seminary as well as some of our other seminaries. Uh, the, the brother that I referenced a while ago is serving as the uh, provost right now at Southern Seminary. There's some other professors who have written some things that I, I think are troubling in this regard. Uh, I'm not um, necessarily going to document each of those here. Those are well documented in other places on the Internet. And uh, I, that that is troubling uh, to me. I also think the Southern Baptist Convention does need to be led by a pastor. Uh, and again, the pastor of a church that's more of a, a normal or normative church. I, I would also say that Dr. Moeller has without question been one of the most influential leaders uh, in the SBC, maybe for the last 20 to 25 years, certainly, uh, w- perhaps the most influential person right now. And, and that would just lead to two quick points, uh, Brother Harold, that I would make. And that is that, uh, if you feel like your platform gives you a unique Ability to bring Southern Baptists together, um, why haven't we already done so? Uh, Because uh, being elected as the president of the SBC is not going to give Dr. Moeller any greater influence uh, than what he already has now. Uh, It's also because of that, I say, let's spread the influence around. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't have to be disrespectful of the tremendous way that God has used Dr. Moeller and the great influence that he has. But that's all the more reason to let let's let's spread the influence out uh to someone who leads uh, what really is the headquarters of the Southern Baptist Convention and that is the local church um, one one last distinction I guess I would make is to have served as uh in various capacities in the state and national convention uh i I don't run with the big name preachers and so I'm not as worried about having to um, uh, maybe not step on toes in that regard. Uh, Dr. Moeller's influence, the relationships of other entity heads, I think is well documented. And, uh, he's a fine man. I thank God mm-hmm. for him, but I just don't think that it's the right time for him to serve as SBC president.
1: Right. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I can appreciate uh, what Moeller has done, but in Arkansas, we call it the good old boy system. It's, and I'm not trying to say that Mueller's a good old boy. I'm just saying there is a group of people at the top, and it, you really run the risk of you nominate me, I nominate you. You run this, you run that. I really feel like in in the the preachers and the circles that I run in, people are looking for a a pastor to take this office, just like in politics, people are looking for a non politician to step up and throw his hat in the ring in politics. Right. Right. And, uh, that's kind of what I'm hearing in you is, look, I'm a pastor first and I feel like I have an opportunity to serve in this capacity. And, uh, I think when it comes down to casting a vote between you or, or Moeller, I think you have to look at that. Do I want a guy that like me is, is struggling with the same things that I struggle with in pastoral ministry? Or do I want a guy that's already been basically at the helm of the convention for 20 plus years? Right. And, uh, I think that makes, I think that makes your nomination very appealing to the average, um, Southern Baptist pastor and church member. Mm-hmm. Um, it's encouraging. I, I just, of course, I, I knew of you, uh, before we were interviewing, but every answer you give, I'm like, yes, that's, yes, that's what I would say if they were asking me this question. So, uh, I, I just. I've been sitting over here quietly, amen, to myself.
2: <laughs> well, I shared with some with some pastors last week. They, they, one of them wanted to take exception with the idea that there's a conflict of interest because of their love and respect for Dr. Moeller. And uh, my answer to that is, I share that love and I mm-hmm. share that respect. But in the same way, um, we, we don't have we we have male leadership in our committee chairs here uh, in our church. But just for by way of illustration. My wife is the godliest person that I know, uh, not just the godliest woman. She's the she's the godliest person that I know, uh, but she doesn't need to be the chairperson of our church's personnel committee mm-hmm. uh, because they have at least some collective oversight of the office of the pastor, and that's a, that is a group of leaders to whom I am justifiably and rightly accountable. And if for no other reason, even if she made every decision rightly led by the spirit, it opens it up to undue criticism and, mm-hmm. and perhaps even the false accusation that there's undue influence. So uh, mm-hmm. I do not have to impugn anybody's character or wisdom or decision-making uh, capability at all to just acknowledge organizationally there's a conflict of interest.
1: Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, conflicts of interest and influence, let's shift gears a little bit.
0: Let me ask you kind of a, a tough, controversial uh, question here is the, uh, the direction of the ERLC, mm-hmm. which is led by what I would consider and say a rogue president, Russell Moore, his leadership, and some of the recent issues that have come up where he has been vocal. Other things, he's been deadly silent has called even more division in the Southern Baptist Convention. What is your, what are your thoughts about the direction the ERLC is going?
2: Well, I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage here, uh, simply because last February, the executive committee, I was the chairman at that time, formed an ERLC task force to look into, um, how the Actions, direction, etc., of the ERLC and of its president may be having a negative impact on the cooperative program. That report is not yet published. It will be soon published, and I would encourage your listeners. Uh, maybe even by the time this uh, podcast airs, uh, by the time you drop it, it may be published. Hmm. And uh, it, it is a it is a very thorough report. As the chairman, I agree. With the report, and so I would, in some ways, just need to defer my answer uh, to that. I will say that I'll certainly comment on some things that are kind of out in the public sphere that don't have anything to do with the confidentiality of that yet to be released report. It, it is a common occurrence to hear people who say it's it's the lack of consistency that that is a problem. To be right. so uh, vocal, for example. About the sins of our former president, with which I agree. Yeah. I agree with that. I have taken this president to task, uh, from my own pulpit. I've said that it's, it's a shame that I can't put my children down in front of a presidential press conference, uh, to learn, you know, about civics and current events without uh, wanting to make sure the parental guardian box is mm-hmm. on so they're not exposed to filthy words and sure. uh, uh, what, what some would call narcissistic behavior. Uh, I've never condoned any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if somebody criticizes that and calls upon Christians to criticize that, I have no problem with that at all. In fact, I've done the same thing myself. Uh, the problem, however, comes when you are silent as a church mouse toward one side of the aisle, but, uh, very, very vocal, uh, toward the other side of the aisle. It is that inconsistency, um, that, that I find, that I find troubling personally. Uh, a very recent example of that is you would be hard pressed to do an internet search and find very much that was stated about violent riotous protest and anarchy that occurred across this country starting in the summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there were the attacks at the Capitol, which were egregious, sinful, shameful, mm-hmm. criminal. I could not condemn uh, those actions. It was January 6th, I believe was yes. the date on that. Well, I, I could not condemn that with any harsher terms. That uh, that that than than what I've just done, mm-hmm. but I would say I have set myself up for justified criticism uh, if I am very vocal about that, but say nothing uh, about protests that come from and violence that comes from the other side of the political aisle. Yeah. There is a great source of division uh, from that and some of our other entities. When I talk with pastors around the country. It is a regular, regular topic of discussion that you don't have to initiate. Right. It's brought up. Yes. For example, I didn't ask you to ask this question. I right. didn't ask you to ask any of these questions. Uh, but, um, you're, you're asking this question because of what you hear.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: yeah. and, uh, from, from pastor friends of yours.
3: Sure.
2: But bottom line answer to that question, I guess the, the fullest answer is I need to defer to the, uh, Uh, the report of the task force when it comes out.
1: Mm -hmm. That'll that'll be a more thorough answer anyway, so I I don't have a problem waiting on that.
0: Well, I hate to say it, but this is all the time we have for part one of our interview with Pastor Mike Stone. It's been a a joy.
1: Man, I've been encouraged. I, I can't wait to get into part two.
0: Yes. Well, in the coming days here, in just a few days, we'll get into part two of our conversations with Pastor Mike Stone. Thank you for listening to the Patriot Pastors Podcast.